Hey guys, welcome to the Lifesaver podcast. That's Lifesaver with a hyphen and Savor with an O. Lifesaver is dedicated to appreciating life. I'm your host, Eric Victor Reed, and here on Lifesaver, we like to talk about life. We talk about ideas, perspectives, experiences, and even some wisdom about how to live with a sense of peace, freedom, and exhilaration. We look for life lessons and ways to love life. Please join me as we delve into the good stuff. We're speaking with my mother, Christine Mikulishek. For most of her life, she's been a professional sculptor and nomadic adventurer. We explore her life and life lessons over four episodes. Having covered her whole life in previous episodes, we take a step back now to muse upon some lifesaver themes. I think you'll really enjoy this deep dive into observations about life. Here's a taste of some of our topics. How our perspective changes as we age. Discussion of our core self. Learning from pain, expressing love, dying with dignity, defending against those who belittle our, quote, fanciful motivations, refusing to waste our life and refusing to let others control our life, doing what you want as a danger to society? I don't think so. Making the tapestry of your life a beautiful thing for your own appreciation of it. We have a lot of juicy content to get into, so let's dive right in. Thanks for joining me again on the Lifesaver podcast. My pleasure. We uh, basically went over your entire life. Yeah. <laughs> so congratulations on making it. Wow, I haven't looked at the broad sweep of my life like that, <laughs> probably ever. Uh, yeah, and I did that partly selfishly for my own understanding. And I get a kick out of people's lives and the choices that they made. And that sort of thing is fascinating to me. But I also wanted to do a session that was just more oriented towards Lifesaver itself. We've been getting into our shared experience, but there was a lot before I was had awareness. Had awareness, yeah. And then even when I had awareness, I think we will have some very different takes on things, which yeah. is what's interesting to me about life and people's different perspectives is you can inhabit the same time and place and have a completely different experience of that. I mean, not completely different, but the things you remember right. can be different or what what has an impact on you because you're a different age, you're, you know, different you're in your age. 20s or 30s or versus your coming of age. Right. And you bring, you bring, yeah, so you bring different experiential sort of setup to each event. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and of course, different personalities too are attracted yeah, to right. imprint different things or different ways of looking at things. So Yeah, I've thought about that in, in an interesting way. Um, an older person and a younger person are themselves almost like different personalities. Yeah. Um, not exactly, but someone who's 35 years older or 23 years older or whatever. Yeah. Has a radically different experience of the same event than that younger person who is just discovering things. Right. That's um, right. It's very interesting to me. I, I love, you know, sort of principles like that of, of living, of life. It's just fascinating stuff. You know, I think there's a core, uh, a core self that I would advise everyone to become good friends with at a young age because that's who you have to live with it all the time forever. Yeah. But I think there's an essential self that um, doesn't change in, in the way it approaches things, approaches life. But, you know, life takes its toll, and it, it, for good or ill, it, I think life experiences do change us. I know that I have, I have a different, per well, perspective, isn't that it? You know, you get, 
a different perspective on what's important and why. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, important and to you at that particular time in your life, which is interesting to me too. It's not right or wrong. It's just that is what is important to you at that time of your life. Yeah. You know, we're talking about a period in my life when I sort of, you know, screwed up by the numbers. I mean, like most young people, maybe you had it, you probably had it nailed like oh, no, God, day no. one. But it took me a while, maybe till I was 30 to, you know, become pretty good at life management. And so I, you know, did all kinds of, you know, stupid or silly things, but, and somehow survived all of that. But I still have an abiding affection for the young, younger me. I look back on all of the stuff I went through and and I I know I understand more now and I have I have perspective and I think I have more wisdom certainly and I can see where I made mistakes but you know I still like that person. Yeah, that's something that's I'm proud of her. She's like this brave yeah. rabbit, you know. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, um, I I've always really liked my young person Good. who was trying. And that, I think the best of us, the best of people, you know, they're, they're trying. And I think that's a lot of people. They're, they're trying to figure things out at whatever age they, they're at. We all go through trials and tribulations. And, right. and that's how we learn to read between the lines, I think, of life. I think when we're young, we have this idea of we'll have a set, there'll be a path or something. And, oh, yeah. and, uh, and you follow these rules and there, it's kind of a more surface level Disneyland kind of idea of life. But as you get older, you, you start to reflect on yourself more and you think you have it all figured out and nailed, <laughs> you know, when you're oh, yeah. 17 through whatever, 28 or 29. And then you start to realize, oh, I really didn't get it at all. <laughs> well, I, I uh, but but you still like yourself. Hopefully, yeah. you know you like that young person who was innocent. So it's an interesting paradox in a way. I love that kid, and you love your kid that's inside of you, yeah. who was there when they were kids. But but we also recognize <laughs> that kid had a lot of learning to do too. Well, you know, one thing that's interesting because I kept a journal since I was about eighteen. I just love to write stuff. I did since I was about 14, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know what I always called it was my therapist. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never had to go to a psychotherapist, but I've had plenty of times when I needed help, and I could help myself. I found out that if I wrote stuff down, whatever was on my mind or heavy in my heart or whatever, if I wrote about it, the great thing about that is I could go back and reread it, mm-hmm. and within a few days or a few hours or whatever it took, I could figure out i could figure i could find my answers somebody wise person said you know if you you look outside yourself for answers you should look inside Mm -hmm. because they're there you just haven't found them yet and and i it was like me talking to myself i mean literally it was sort of the editor the the what do they call it the 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 better me you Mm -hmm. know the smarter me was Mm -hmm. was like advising the other me about well because i could read i could reread what i wrote and I could figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. And that helped me so much my whole life. And you know what's interesting, though, is I, I had all these wise things that I wrote in my journals when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20. Yeah. And then somehow I screwed up anyway, you know? Right. <laughs> somehow I forgot them when I needed it most. I forgot the, the wise, the wisdom. And it's not that I forgot it. It's just you get busy with life and you and you just do the best you can. And uh, and then I'd go back and read my journals from like five years before and think, well, I already understood that. How come? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. Uh, How come I had to learn it all over again? <laughs> I thought about that quite a bit, too. And um, <laughs> one of the things I tell my kids, which is funny because, you know, I've got the lifesaver thing and the whole 
sort of messages like you know appreciate your life and but the, the funny thing is I, I i'm a bit of a paradox too and that i also tell myself and my kids you know the principle that pain is one of the greatest long-lasting instructors mm. that there is mm. uh, of of what really of what's really important to learn that's true and that's why i i urge my kids to try stuff in reality as much as possible, because there's nothing like the pain of reality to teach you the lessons that no book and no person can really teach you. It's it's your own personal pain <laughs> with with the situation yeah. that teaches you the most of like, okay, I really don't want to do that again. And then you do it again, and then you're like, oh, I really, really, really don't want to do that again. And after, right. you know, no, a number of times of doing it, you're like, that's part of me now. I'm not doing that again. I'm, I'm going to figure out a way. You're smart enough. Exactly. You know, you it's, know. Yeah. You can't decide. You, you learn to come in from the rain. Right. <laughs> Deciding not to do something, you know, that harms your, you know, is impediment to your life or happiness. Mm-hmm. Deciding not to do it anymore just doesn't really work. It takes time and yeah. probably more painful experience until finally, you know, it be, be, beats its way in, yeah. <laughs> into your daily habits. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, that's the stuff nobody teaches you. You know, it's <laughs> the stuff you learn through your own kind of Except for Burgess. Experience. I think he could decide not to. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, he was pretty... <laughs> He, that's one thing I admired about him is his self-discipline. And I mean, he took ideas really seriously and it was yeah. like, if it's right, then I'm doing it. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. so whether it's diet or politics or anything, um, it's just, it's just, uh, I am committed to the right ideas. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I'm that way with like politics and such, but when it oh, comes yeah. to it's more yeah. first, like things like diet and exercise, oh, I know. It's like I wish I was a little bit more like him. <laughs> I know he was he was awesome. Yeah, in in that sense, yeah, yeah. But that like with everybody that comes with its handicaps too, you know. Yeah. So uh, he he was everybody a, is a blue plate special. Blue I think. plate special. I like that. Yeah, and he was a very different kind of you know uh, blue plate special. Yeah, I guess we all are. So I had said something before about it's it could be worse than to have a child with your best friend, with a good friend Mm. who shares, who's rational and shares the same idea set. And I just wanted to add that Burgess and I could not continue to live together. We tried and Mm -hmm. and it was just too stressful for both of us because we're such different personalities. But I never lost respect and a kind of affection for him. I just couldn't live with him. And we both had this like great love for you. And so it was like we were going to make this work out. That's the good thing about doing anything with rational people is you don't really, it's hard to have regrets no matter how it turns out because it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, it's funny. This is getting off, but that's fine. Um, I just had a glimpse of of him. I was thinking about, um, you know, he, he didn't always show emotion to people he was close to, but I know deep down he had deep emotion. Because I've seen it come out. I, one of the things we used to do together was uh, we would, uh, when I would spend time with him on the weekends or whatever, uh, we'd see movies. We'd do movie marathons, which you know back in the '80s was a big deal, like because yeah. you couldn't see movies otherwise. Right. So we'd go to theaters and we'd do you know James That's Bond great. marathon or great. some other yeah. movie marathon. And uh, I remember him breaking down during certain scenes, really, in movies. And it was a side of him I hadn't seen a lot of. But I always had, as a kid, you kind of have a sense of your parents, and you know that it's there. 
but it just concretized that there's a lot going on inside of him. He just, his personality is not such that he usually feels comfortable expressing that. And probably not around me as, as you know, as a kid, you don't want to express too much around your kid, but... Um, oh, I think you do. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you don't yeah. want to show too much angst, for example, oh, over right. the stresses okay. of being an adult, so you don't freak out your kid too much, but that sort of thing. You might want to edit this out, but I, I just want to, on that note, I want to tell you something that I'll never forget. So we've said we were, were very different personalities. I could not feel loved by him. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lesson from that, that it's not enough to love someone. Right. If you're going to have a, a long-term relationship, you have to express the love in in a way that the other person registers, mm -hmm. in a way that the other person feels loved. Mm -hmm. And so when when he decided to move back to Palo Alto, go back to work for Hewlett Packard, which was basically a separation mm -hmm. of us. That was when I was I was about three or four. Yeah, point. you yeah. were just three and a half. I think it was it was six months or so after we stopped in Portland. So I took him to the airport course to catch his flight. And you know, he put his hands on my shoulders and he said, you know, I love you. And I swear, I wanted to, I almost wanted to swear at him. It was like, why didn't you let me know? Why mm -hmm. couldn't you let me feel it? Yeah. Because I didn't. Yeah. Uh, he had a lot of repression, which was one of the things that he was working on. He was seeing counselors and yeah. psychologists. Yeah. And, and I've seen counselors. And so, I mean, I recommended that to anybody, but but it was something that it was deep in his personality. He was, a, he was an extremely cerebral, introverted type of personality, although he could function very well yes. uh, within social interactions because he had learned to through his uh, business opportunities. So I think, frankly, he was born to be a writer, uh, which is what he eventually, he retired early at the, around the age of 45 and because um, he'd saved up enough money. And he then explored fiction writing and then went into, I think, his true love, which was the history of ideas, Yeah, which was what he really explored he loved for the, the last research. 20 years of his life, which is fantastic. He always loved history. Yeah. He would read books of history. You know, and so, and he never ended up living with anybody. You know, he, he no. died alone, which to a lot of people sounds sad, but for him, no. it was really, that's who he was. And he, he relished his time he, alone. You know what his, it was? He could, space. he could control all of his time. He could control it. Yeah. All of his and time for, and space. That was yeah. satisfying for his, his personality. Deeply right. satisfying. Right. And when he came to visit, he enjoyed being with us, but it was always... Then he'd go back to his... his. It was his sanctuary. His home was... And his home was always very simple. He lived like a monk. He had lots of money. <laughs> yeah. But he lived like... He just wanted a simple room with a table for his computer yeah. and... And shelves of books. And he walked and rode bicycle. Oh my gosh, yeah. you know, great I, exercise. I really admire his life. I, I, I couldn't live that way, but I still admire his life. And I'll just include, you know, he took his own life uh, when it looked like he was going to be heading for slavery in the hospital system um, because of health issues. And he decided when he wanted to quit. And I, to this day, admire that. I don't know that that's the way I'm going to go out, but yeah. I mean, it could be, but I do admire that. You know, he, he lived on his own terms. And he died on his own terms. He lived on his own terms. Exactly. You know, when I picked him up from the hospital, he'd been in there and they'd run a bunch of tests and stuff. And he knew that it was not a good outcome. He actually, I thought he was discharged, but he wasn't. He got up, got dressed, walked yeah. out of the hospital, <laughs> called Tanya to pick him up. Yeah. And she couldn't because she was working. So she called me and I picked him up. He knew that if he got went back to the hospital, he would not be able to control yeah. the end of his life. And uh, he, he had a deep dignity about him and independence. He did. And that's who he was. 
Absolutely. And basically, they would be stealing who he was. That's right. And he wasn't willing to live with that. That's right. And you know, when the when the deputies came to the door that morning yeah. um, to tell us, my jaw dropped and I got, I got goosebumps. I mean, I was just shocked, sort of. But we all understood. Mm-hmm. Completely we all understood. understood. Yeah. That, of course, that's the way Burgess would. Yeah. And that takes a brave person to do that. Absolutely. He planned it all out, and that note that he left, I'm sorry to, you know. Yeah. It was like the, one of the most polite <laughs> exits. <was. laughs> Uh, it was. That is imaginable. Even the police were like, wow, this is like one of the, the cleanest. Uh, yeah. And he was, the, the police were even almost like thankful to him of like, wow, he really did us a favor by doing this so cleanly. He planned it all out too, so that he wouldn't do any damage or make a mess yeah. for his a, landlord. Be a burden on anybody right. or right. anything. Right. Anyway. Okay. So that was an aside. That was great though. I digression. Think. Um, a worthy digression. Yes. That's deeply about life. It is. And as I get older, Older, it's even more important to me. It becomes yeah. more and more important. Me too. To I, me. I consider that too. You know. I want to mention that every person over seventy-five that I talk to, without exception, every person over seventy that I talk to, without exception, agrees that we should have the power to decide yeah. when, where, and how. Yeah. We have earned. We we are mature people, yeah. and we own our lives, Absolutely. and we have earned the right to decide. You were mentioning to me just a little bit ago about your relationship with Tom. You thought about it at night when you're lying lying awake thinking about our, our interview about your life and you were thinking, oh, there's there's something else I want to say. Yeah. First, I, I suppose I have a tendency to forget the bad stuff. I try to learn lessons from it, but I don't wallow in it. The real deal breaker with Tom was that he had a different aesthetic reason for doing sculpture. I mean, he was a good sculptor and very skilled craftsman, knew a lot of stuff. But what he wanted to do with his ability and knowledge was quite different than what I wanted to do. I wanted to do figures that represented, that were driven by emotion, that mm-hmm. that evoked emotion in me and in the viewer. Well, I would try to capture an emotion like joy or even anguish, you know. What, what do you do? It's an abstract concept. But you can use the human figure to very powerfully convey feelings like that Mm. to other human beings because we all get it. You know, we recognize gestures and expressions and and emotion. Mm -hmm. And I I wanted to speak to maybe other human beings, I suppose, which, by the way, I think is what visual art can do. Is without senza parole, Italian phrase, without words. I wanted to do things that people would understand. They'd get, you know, 500 years from now or whenever. Mm-hmm. Bronzes last a long time. So that was my agenda. Tom had a very different agenda. He wanted to do things for the market, things that would sell, things that galleries wanted that they knew they could sell for lots of money. That makes him sound very crass, but it's not as simple as that. It's just he had a very different aesthetic. To him, like getting that contract to do the thousand belt buckles or whatever it is for Coors, you know, for Tom, that was what being a sculptor was all about. To him, that was a sign of success. Exactly. That's a well, very well put. That that cuts through the stuff. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. For him, that was being successful. 
But for me, I had a whole different agenda. What I wanted to do was sculpture. And whenever I would talk about some, you know, shining vision (laughs) in my head of a sculpture I wanted to do, he tended to put it down and say, well, that's all very nice, but it'll never sell. Don't waste your time on that because there's no market for it. We have to make money. And I thought I can make money as an accountant or a waitress. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm in sculpture. If I'm not getting around to doing what I came here for, what I want, what I need to do, and sculpture, then what's the point? Mm -hmm. And that was something that we could never resolve. As long as I was with him, he had an idea of what was, and he was very judgmental about it. You know, he he knew he was the master. He knew what was a good product. Product, Mm -hmm. to him, it was a product. To me, it was an expression of my love for life, my feelings about life, about humanity. Which is the whole reason you're doing it in the first place. And frankly, the whole reason you're living in the first place. This touches on Lifesaver and the book. My idea that the real reason we live at all is for, ultimately, for our aesthetic experience of being alive as human beings, uh, which is a rare gift that we human beings get to experience, to enjoy. I mentioned in the book, there are people out there who will think that what you're going after is very juvenile. Tom said it was juvenile because it doesn't end in concrete money success. So what good is it? And my point in Lifesaver and in the book is that that's the entire point of living, to have the aesthetic experience of life that you get to have for this limited amount of time. Absolutely. And ultimately, that is the payoff for living. Everything else is a pale substitute. It's a false substitute for that ultimate thing, which is the experience that you really want to have and feel during your limited time alive. Right. While you have this chance right. to experience I, that. I, I want to say a few words that might be appropriate about how I came to came to this. I Personally, I think this approach of savoring life, of doing with it what you dream of, what you most need to do because you own it. You know, it's what you have. It's really the, the only thing you have mm-hmm. that matters, certainly. I came to it. I, I had a fierce determination when I set out on to make my own life when I left my parents' home, a fierce determination to make my life what I wanted it to be, to do the things that I wanted to do with my time. I didn't have all the perspective, certainly, that I I have acquired since then. But my mother, who gave me a lot of love and nurturing, but she was very religious. And she she didn't really do much. She kind of gave up on life. I watched this happen as by the time I was 12 or 13. She was most mostly in bed. And there was the doctor said there's nothing wrong with her. She was just broken, not broken. She, she listened to religious music all the time. And she, you know, she was in love with Jesus. And she was looking forward to sitting next to him in heaven when she died. And so here I am, I was just absolutely exhilarated by life from a young age and excited about life and enthusiastic about things. And I'm watching my mother's life just like sand slipping between her fingers, you know, it's just wasted. Mm-hmm. And because she was looking forward to something else after 
death. And I was determined, as I said, I, I left religion behind by the time I was, well, I was seriously questioning by the time I was 16, by the time I was 17, it was, it was a done deal. One of the greatest lessons I learned early on from my mother was to not let that happen. Mm-hmm. That I could and should create a custom-tailored life that suited me, that mm-hmm. didn't, it wasn't going to suit my parents. I had to kind of cut that connection because I left religion. And it's not that I never spoke to them again or anything. It wasn't like that. It's just that we couldn't really spend a lot of time together because sooner or later she would be praying for my salvation, you know. Anyway, I watched that happen and I was just determined not to let anybody else's rules or ideas control the outcome of my life. That's a good way of putting it. To some extent, it's almost a gift to be the black sheep. I know it's hard, but <laughs> no, when, when you kind of get it out of the way, yeah, there's all these pressures and expectations that I think largely start with family. And then we project that onto society. You know, are you doing the right thing? Well, if you cut that off, right. what you're asking is yourself, am I doing the right thing for me? Exactly. Uh, which, for, frankly, I think the, a vast majority of people don't seriously consider before they consider the question of, well, what do my parents think? What do my friends think? What do my neighbors think, even, right. you know, or society? And that was not an issue for me. Right. And uh, um, it made it very clear <laughs> from the outset. You know, you know that line from the, the uh, Simon and Garfunkel uh, song, Sail on Silverbird? Mm-hmm. Every time I hear that, there's something inside me just like, it's like chills. Yeah. Uh, but good ones, you know, like way down deep in my core, because that's how I felt. Once I got outside that box... I was amazed. It was like the weight of the world was lifted from mm-hmm. my shoulders. Not yeah. the world, but the other stuff, you know. The the baggage was just gone. And I felt light as a feather. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way life should feel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In its best moments. Yeah. I didn't have to worry about burning in hell because I did the wrong thing for right. eternity, right? Yeah. <laughs> Because I, you know, did the wrong thing at the wrong time or whatever. All those things. Anyway, it was just very liberating. So, you know, I've probably made some mistakes, but I own them. That's the thing that I figured out early on is I could go anywhere, do anything I wanted as long as I could buy the ticket Mm -hmm. and didn't hurt anybody else intentionally. It's just a piece of time that we own. So it was later on that I arrived at that concept of that life, life is just a piece of time. Mm-hmm. For the animals, it's a it's their piece of time. And for us human animals, it's our piece of time. But boy, we can do so much with it. We're just, it's the best. I mean, I used to think it was tragic that we had to die someday. But while we're here, while we're here, it's just a tremendous opportunity to, you get to enjoy, savor. You know, I love that that concept. As soon as you told me about your idea of calling your work Life Saver and your book Life Saver, S-A-V-O-R, I thought, perfect. Savoring life is something I think we the world would be a happier place, a more peaceful place if more people thought of life that way. That it's this piece of time that we should savor. We should just just squeeze every drop of rich juice out of it that we can, you know. Yeah, let me read a couple passages that relate to the thing you were talking about with Tom and you know his idea of success and kind of belittling your sort of fanciful ideas of what you wanted to do with your time and your sculpture. This may touch on that a bit. We need never feel guilty about taking time for anything that is truly important to our aesthetic experience of life, whether it's working toward a personally meaningful goal or appreciating the wind blowing across a field of flowers on a sunny day. We live for a fulfilling aesthetic experience of life. 
and our pursuits are justified as a means to that end. The requirements of life provide our standard for survival, but the aesthetic experience we most want for our life provides the standard for what to do with our survival. Right. You know, about the the thing you said about Tom's standard of success was getting clients and paychecks and doing stuff that was people paid a lot of money for or, you know, paid good money for. Making a living was never a problem for me. I could wait tables four nights for dinner shifts at a fancy restaurant, make, you know, enough money to live, control my overhead. So I didn't need a lot of cash flow. I could work. I could pick up a job and make money to live on. Mm -hmm. I did art for other reasons. Call it a hobby if you want. But I, I saw around me, by the way, I saw around me sculptors who, I saw some of them start out with, you know, dreams and vision, their own personal artistic vision and uh, dreams of doing emotionally driven work. And, you know, they talked to me about it because they recognized that in my work. And, and I saw them change. Uh, they got their work into galleries and then the galleries started saying, well, you know, if you could make this or that, I could sell it like hotcakes. And, and of course, I've been through that myself with galleries, but I saw them change and I saw them give up the dream they started out with, the reason for doing it. The reason they went into it, it got changed to, oh, the money's rolling in. So I'll just keep doing the shiny stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a lot of pressure to have that status of having made it. It takes a, a lot of insight and introspection and courage and will to resist that. You know, there's nothing wrong with making money. I fully support making money, but... You know, Richard Schmidt, who is one of my most admired painters and human beings, was, unfortunately, he died last year, but Richard wrote in his book something to the effect of, because everybody's going around talking about style. They go to art school and they teach a bunch of different styles. And and they say, well, I like this guy's style or that style. I want to be part of this style, you know, or do work in that style. And he said, if you're an artist and your work is honest, then the style will be the style of your soul. Mm-hmm. It should be like, if it's something you love to do, then protect, understand what you came for, what you what you want to accomplish with it that will be personally fulfilling and protect that. Okay, in the years that you were growing up, I did commercial sculpture, contract work, and but I knew the difference. I always mm-hmm. kept them separate in mm-hmm. my mind and in my heart. <clears throat> there was the commercial work that brought in pay, regular paychecks every month, and there was the personal work. And one of the problems with Tom was that if I wanted to take time to do personal work, he would give me grief about it. Because to him, it, commercial work was where it's at. <laughs> that was success, as you said, to him. You have to protect to me, it's like a sanctuary. You know, art, I mean, art has been such a personal pleasure, joy of mine since I was a little kid. And what I, so I found out that, well, I can use my hands, my skill, my ability to realize someone else's vision mm-hmm. for pay, but I need to be real clear that that's what I'm doing mm-hmm. and not slip into the idea that this is what I came for, yeah. you know, and yeah. keep, keep my own where always make room and space and time for my own personal stuff. Yeah. But clarity is so important. Yeah. Because, I mean, you, you have to find a way to, to support yourself in life. Yeah. But, but that doesn't mean you have to shape your entire being to just that. That's um, right. Let me read another passage that Good. touches on this. We often say that we should pursue our dreams, but we often don't follow through with this advice because we are convinced by ourselves or by others that to do so is 
quote, impractical. What is practical or impractical, however, can only be determined by what we ultimately hope to get out of life. Chasing our biggest dreams and fascinations, regardless of how unconventional they are or how likely they are to succeed, is one of the most practical uses we can make of our time alive, because our aesthetic experience of life is our ultimate payoff for living. It's what we ultimately get out of life and what we stay alive for. Or in my not-so-pretty way of saying it, I always said, well, that's what makes it worth hustling to pay the rent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is is the joy. Do you think that everybody experiences joy? I mean, that just like, just simple, quiet joy in there, somewhere in here. I yeah, don't know. I think it comes from, from different places, yeah. depending on your personality. But I think the, the deepest joy, because we all get joy as five-year-olds at our birthday party and, and that sort of joy. But That's glee. Well, you know, joy, you can call <laughs> it glee or joy or yeah. whatever. But, but I think there is a, a deeper, I think, what I call fulfillment. Oh, um, yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, which has to do with meaningfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, not just momentary pleasure, but something that connects with something that's really important to you on, on a very deep right. level. Right. And there is that kind of serenity and that kind of deep joy yeah. that I think a lot of people don't find because they do get too caught up in society's expectations and they become deaf to... <laughs> To the words that are coming from deep down inside of them, uh, they just don't listen to them. Um, and so they don't connect with them and they don't pursue those things. There's a reason there's a lot of midlife crises. Um, I think people realize that society's paths are leading to no actual real deep satisfaction like we're talking about. And then they come to a crisis realization. Well, if this doesn't work, then what, you know? What is there? Well, I guess I'll have to buy a a red sports car or something to Mm -hmm. make me feel better. But they still haven't connected with that hard work of looking deep down inside and discovering who am I and what really does it for me. Yeah, And also, usually, what creative thing does it for me? Right. Because other pleasures are momentary. And I'm all for pleasures, but there is a long-standing sense of peace that comes with discovering a thing that you create as a human being that makes the world a better place, not primarily even for other people, but for your own satisfaction. Right. That I've created something good mm-hmm. and it's meaningful to me. And it can be building engines, it can be selling homes to people who are looking for homes, it can be it can be sculpture, it can be anything but it's what really does it for you it can be making a beautiful garden or growing beautiful delicious food but that often comes from a struggle inside with yourself to figure out who you are that's right and and i think most people don't take that time to do that struggle because it's viewed just like i was saying in the earlier passage is viewed as a waste of time as a waste of life when in fact it's the path to an exceptional use of your time a lot you know, when I was when I was young, people used to come to me for advice uh, for some reason. I'm yeah, me too. Not sure why. You too, yeah, yeah, because yeah, they figured I had it together or something. So they'd come. They had you know upsets in their life. I'm talking like before you were born, young, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. I was like the Ann Landers of the, the the social group, and I would give advice. One time, I had this girlfriend. She was had this problem. She was weak, and I you know compassionately told her what I thought would be the best course of action, and she suddenly turned on me. 
and screamed at me, you think you're so smart. You, everything is so easy for you. And But what I realized, actually, it was good that I was set back on my heels at that point because I've been very reluctant to give advice ever since then. The important thing is for me to figure out what works for me, mm-hmm. what I need to bring into my life and what I need to push out of my life to make my world and my life a better place. But I can't decide that for anyone else. Yeah, I am not them. I don't bring their life experience to the table. I don't have, you know, what I realized is I cannot decide for anybody else what will make them happy. Mm-hmm. Only they can. And I hope that they do the work, as you said, of figuring that out at a young age, because then they get to spend most of their life, you know, enjoying themselves. And, and what I've found <laughs> is that the most you can do is give them perspective. Yeah. Um, you cannot make that decision. You cannot do that hard work for them, but you can clear out some of the rubble and suggest to them, hey, look at your life this way. Exactly. Um, for example, in Lifesaver, you have this limited time to be alive. What do you want to do with that time? Exactly. Uh, they have to figure and, it out. And they've never thought of it that way. They haven't. And it's a breath of fresh air. That doesn't mean they're going to follow that or stick with it, but I've seen it dawn on people's faces and that it's like they've never seen it that way because they've been raised and raised themselves with this pressure to conform to the expectations of other people, which took their eye off the ball of themselves of what do I want? And it also took their their eye off the ball of what is this thing called life? Oh, I actually just have a limited amount of time alive. Or some people will look to religion and eternal life, which doesn't exist, and they take their eye off the ball right. of what is really most important here. What is really most important about what you want out of life is that you have this limited time. That's right. Now go into life with that perspective and see what kind of choices you want to make. If you can carry that perspective with you. Yeah, boy. And that's, that's a hard thing to do because we're all prey to expectations, but the more you can remind yourself. You yeah. know what somebody told me once? Uh, it was a person with kind of an old-fashioned attitude. They said, well, if everybody did that, just went off and did what suited them, then where are the cogs in the wheel? You know, how would society keep running, keep the wheels keep moving mm-hmm. of society because there'd be no doormats. There'd be, no, <laughs> there'd be no, no worker bees, you know, just doing what is needed. But I think that's false. <laughs> yeah, it's a false alternative that people follow their dreams and society collapses. Or, I know, right? Or uh, everybody give up on your dreams and then society will be wonderful. And great. Well, there's a couple of immediate questions, but one question then is, uh, so society will be great, but we aren't living for anything. We have no passions or joys that we're right. pursuing. What is great about that society? <laughs> and secondly, that's just not the way the world works uh, because you still have to find a way to support yourself while you're pursuing your dreams. Right. And so the normal way is to get a job. Of course. <laughs> you know, and if you can get a high paying job, like cleaning out sewers, which nobody wants to do, right. then that means you don't have to spend as much time at work exactly. and you can spend more time following your dreams. People figure a way out and everybody <laughs> right. gets to figure it out for themselves. That's right. So it's not a problem. Yep. Let me read one more passage. Uh, I love to listen to you. Okay. I'm sorry. No, I love your book. I've been reading it. I read it, you know, I've read it uh, twice already. So, Having meaningful experiences is the gold standard of being alive. Such experiences are our very reason for living. Success, quote unquote, in life involves making full use of our chance to have an aesthetic experience of life. Hmm. It's what we ultimately live for. I cherish those choices. Because they are proof that I have lived and honored my time alive. 
Well, bravo. And that was well said. Yeah. There, there's so many uh, wonderful quotations and wonderful ideas. You know, I, I just want to, for the record, I want to say this. You've heard me say it before, but when you were growing up, people would ask, like they always ask about your kid, well, what do you think they want to be when they grow up? And my answer by the time you were 10 or 11 was, well, you know, he was born to be a philosopher, but uh, I don't know if he can find a job doing that in the classifieds anywhere. So your guess is as good as mine about what path he's going to take or work he's going to find. But but you have always loved ideas. I'm so glad that you channeled your lifetime of thinking about these things into this book. Well, thank you. Good job. I've been endorsed by mom. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when you think about... No, no, that is meaningful to me, though. I appreciate that. But you were talking about the idea of not following anyone else's idea of what my life should be like. And so on a practical level, think about some of the people you know. Which one would you want to follow, you know, life principles of other than yourself? I can think of a few people that you just hit the brick wall right away if you followed their idea of what a good life would be. You just have to find your own... Yeah, and I, you know, I want to commend you for doing that uh, uh, and for being a role model for that, too. You know, you made that decision to do that with your life, um, something that, that I've admired for a long time. And that set me up, you know, you were a good role model for uh, for me doing that with my life in my own way. And also, frankly, for Lifesaver. There are strains of Lifesaver that I got from you and how you modeled your life. Well, that's a good thing to pass on generationally, isn't it? That <laughs> yeah. that approach to life. You know how, well, now that you've raised teenagers, you kind of, kind of worry about them and kind of hope for the best and, you know, be there as much as you can. But one day in Ashland, I knew you were going to be fine. And that was, remember that thunderstorm? Mm-hmm. Well, you already had a job, so I knew you could support yourself. You knew how to make spaghetti and pancakes <laughs> and salad, so I knew you could survive that way when you got out on your own. But you came out into that thunderstorm and spread your arms out and just, I don't know if you shouted or danced or what, but it was just like just sheer joy. Mm-hmm. It was like thunder and lightning, and then there was a rainbow, and you were just there Drinking it in and celebrating it. That's one of the aesthetic experiences of my life that I still remember profoundly. The smells of summer thunderstorm on on, on melted tar. What's the word for fresh rain? There's a smell. Petrichor, I think, is the word. You know, that is one of the anchors in my life that led me towards Lifesaver, of this vision of what life can be, the the potential that life has to be glorious. Yeah. And those glorious life experiences, which I talk about in the book, that that is one of those glorious life experiences. Exactly. You know, and it's not like, I mean, there are humdrum days, you know, where things are kind of, you know, just, you do what you have to do. There's the hafta days, I call them the long list of haftas, and there's not much time left for other things. But if you know, it's kind of like the best drug ever. If you know what that exhilaration, that zest for life feels like, then you're going to keep reaching for it. Mm -hmm. And so on that day, I knew, okay, you knew how to support yourself, you knew how to feed yourself, and you knew about joy. (laughs) You've seen how good life can be. Yes, exactly. And I saw that, your response to that. You'll probably keep fighting for it. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, He's going to be okay. (laughs) You know, again, complimente. uh, Oh, grazie. (laughs) Compliments on your life and how you've lived it. And I know you don't have doubts, but there's struggles along the way, like with Tom or other people who contrast with your approach to life. But the fact that you stuck with what you wanted your life to be, I think is, is a noble thing. And I would like to read one more passage that touches on that. It's the end of chapter four. Good. 
What is a good life? To me, a good life is a full life, a life in which we made full use of our limited time alive. The basic premise of Lifesaver is that life is a precious gift, that we will die someday, and that we must therefore seize our lives, break free of others' pressures and expectations, and make our moments as rich, satisfying, and alive as possible. One day there will be no more sunrises or sunsets for us. What will matter about our life then? In the end, what will matter most is that we lived our rare chance at life deliberately and appreciatively, pursuing a full taste of life. Our ultimate and broadest reward will come from the fact that we didn't waste our life and that we made the life we had a fulfilling work of art for the sake of our own aesthetic experience of it. Bravo. That's profound. And it's so important. That's what everybody needs to discover. They'd be so happy. <laughs> At a certain point in my life, being a visual artist, I'm, you know, visual. I love visual. I love beauty and grace. And, you know, it struck me once. I don't know if it was when I was in Italy or when I became aware of tapestries. And I thought I was looking at a wall and I imagined what a tapestry of my life would mm -hmm. look like. And then I got really sort of fell in love with that concept. Mm -hmm. And I imagined, oh, yeah, and there's gold. There's a gold thread running through it there, and that would be that thing. Mm -hmm. And there's this black thread running, running through over there, and reds and oranges, and it's. And I want it to be a beautiful mm -hmm. tapestry. Yeah, and for you, for your own appreciation. For of it, my the, so <laughs> aesthetic. The, the ta exactly your aesthetic, the tapestry that you would love to look at. Exactly. Somebody else might say, boring. <laughs> yeah. Or they might love it too. But, right. but the main thing is that... It's the, not for their sake. Life is worthwhile to live because it's not just that we live and die. We, we get to appreciate what we made of our life and the choices we made and the experiences that were a consequence of those choices as a tapestry. That's right. As a work of art. That's right. We're, we're both the artist and the appreciator of that work of art. Thanks for joining us in this Lifesaver Roundup episode with my mom. It's been a real pleasure to share ideas and memories. To review more of her life, please have a listen to her other three episodes, starting with Gypsy Sculptor, The Early Years.